Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome to episode eight of the podcast. I'm Dan Hummel, your host. We're in the depths of winter here in Madison, but we're wishing you all warmth wherever you can find it. And of course, we know a lot of you aren't actually in Wisconsin, but are around the country and around the world. And speaking of around the world, our episode this week is on a book primarily related to South Africa, but which also has important and interesting resonance for people everywhere, and especially in the United States. Joining me again to talk about this is Melissa Shackelford, Upper House's Director of Program Curation. Melissa hosted this week's interview and is here to share a bit about it before we jump in. Hi, Melissa. Thanks, Dan. Absolutely. Dr. Christine Jeske is an Associate Professor of Cultural Anthropology at Wheaton College, and she's also the author of several books, including her latest release, The Laziness Myth, Narratives of Work and the Good Life in South Africa. She earned her PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and has worked in microfinance, refugee resettlement, community development, and teaching while living in Nicaragua, China, and South Africa. Yeah, she just has a breadth of experience. And Christina is also a valued member at the Upper House community, too. She's on our Fellows Program Advisory Council which is a program I'm involved in. And her writing for Christianity Today and elsewhere has helped us shape our mission here at Upper House. So, Melissa, tell us a bit about the conversation you and Christine had. Sure. I actually met up with Christine before reading her book and was struck by her gift of listening and her sincere desire to understand, which also comes across in how she writes. Then, once I started reading, there were three main things that drew me in. First, she does a wonderful job explaining the particulars of anthropology and setting up her research. Speaking as someone not in the field, she created accessible on-ramps for me to understand the nuance of her work. Secondly, the book helps you understand others, but it also helps you understand yourself. The variety of narratives uh, she names in the book really opens up your eyes to both cultural differences and systemic challenges which in turn prompt reflection on where you, the reader or listener, fit into the bigger picture. Finally, Christine demonstrates and invites others to a graceful appreciation for complexity, which is just a really great quality that I admire. The following conversation you're about to hear was actually recorded as a live event, and I really want to draw your attention to Christine's willingness to not rush to easy answers for complex issues, as well as her ability to invite reflection on personal vocation in light of cultural narratives. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, the latter part of this conversation includes some questions submitted by the attendees to the live event. So you'll hear that being referenced in the audio. But we figured listeners would like to hear Christine's answers, even if they did break the fourth wall of the podcast. So finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please help us out by rating us five stars on iTunes or sharing the feed with a friend. That's how we grow best is organically and through word of mouth. And you can also let us know how you like this episode by emailing podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. So with that, we'll jump right into an upwards conversation with Melissa and Christine Jeske. I had 
just the gift of reading your book. And congratulations. Thank you. So excited. Um, There is so much to unpack. And I'm really excited for today's conversation. Yeah. Let's get started. So I want to start. um, Some people might not be very familiar with the role of an anthropologist or the field of anthropology. So just starting really basic, can you describe the role of an anthropologist? Yes. Thank you for asking because uh, many people show up for my classes and still don't know what anthropology is. Uh, occasionally I get someone who thinks it might have something to do with dinosaur bones and it's definitely not that. Sometimes people picture Indiana Jones and it's not that either. So cultural anthropology is the subfield of anthropology that I work in okay. and we can summarize that by saying we study culture. So all mm-hmm. the ways that culture interacts with our lives uh, as well as as social structures and the kind of systems that we're part of in our mm. lives. Um, what's unique about it in some ways compared to other disciplines is that we usually study things through qualitative research, mm. meaning we're less interested in big surveys of lots of numbers, but rather on the ground interactions with people, uh, the sort of slow participant observation, we call it, where we're interacting with people mm. in their settings. So it's really good at asking questions like why questions and how questions mm. that are harder to get at with numbers. Okay. That's a great explanation. Good setup for where we're going. <laughs> yeah. um, so focusing or turning to the book, how did the book come about? Was it pre-planned? Did it kind of happen? Did, you, did it find you in some way? Yeah. I uh, went to South Africa in 2006 to work with a microfinance organization. And at that point, I just had an MBA in economic development mm. and was interested in like working for organizations that would do development, whatever that meant. And one of the things that I discovered was that it's not always clear what development means and what people mm. actually want as a better life. And Uh, There's a lot of assumptions under development of like what will make people's lives good. Well, if we give them jobs, they'll be happy. That will make life good. And even Mm. that isn't always a clear, uh, a clear, you know, defined thing for everyone. So uh, I started asking these questions about what works in development, but also Mm -hmm. why development? What are we aiming for and how do we get there? And I was working for an organization that was doing microfinance. So helping people start businesses and that organization hmm. shut down after the first year and a half I was working there. And watching that not function as an organization left me with a lot of questions. And one of the biggest questions was, why do people explain this failure of an organization the way they do? And hmm. I'll tell you what that was. Yeah. was the, uh, the organization couldn't recruit enough people to run businesses. And their explanation that I heard from white South Africans, black South Africans, all kinds of people were uh, that, well, the um, black South Africans, they just, they don't run businesses. They're not entrepreneurial. They don't work hard. And people would just kind of say this almost like Mm. hesitantly or quietly, like, I'm afraid to admit this, but we all know this. And I was intrigued. Mm. (laughs) Interesting. And I wanted to know, why do people say that? Is there something beneath that? What is that disguising? So um, years later, I had an opportunity to do a PhD and uh, was investigating questions about work and development. And this kind of bubbled to the surface Mm. was uh, how do people um, think about what work means in your life? Yeah. So the questions were really tied to that geographical context for you, or that's where they originally emerged. Yeah. But I wanted it to be a question that's applicable anywhere. So Mm -hmm. the questions of what is the good life are personally applicable. They're applicable in development and all kinds of different fields. That's great. So 
As you mentioned the nature of your work, this book represents those hours and hours of fieldwork and interviews and conversations over the course of multiple years. You made several trips, I believe, back and forth after living there for an extended period of time. And you learn intricate details of people's lives um, in the context of these interviews. And so I'm wondering, how does your Christian faith contribute to or influence that process um, of fieldwork, of research, mm-hmm. of writing? And, and my sense from the book is that it's so relational. And so you're, you're steeped in these people's lives. And, and how does your faith come alive in that context? Or does it ever conflict in some way? I think I was fortunate to have one of my first mentors in uh, the first time I lived outside of the United States in a cultural context that wasn't familiar to me was I was moving to Nicaragua with my husband and a mentor of ours basically said, don't think you can do anything. (laughs) We asked, what can we do? What can we offer? And he said nothing. And Mm -hmm. he said, you come and you learn and you Mm -hmm. listen and don't think you're there to fix people's problems, but rather listen. And obviously, as servants of Christ, I see our role as not mm-hmm. just always listening, but that that is such an important starting point, And that being present with people is a way to show respect and love for people mm-hmm. um, as a starting point. And, uh, and there's sort of no limit to the amount of listening that can be done, <laughs> that needs to be done <laughs> in the world. That, I think, played, that, that was a part of how I saw myself as a foreigner in Nicaragua mm-hmm. and then China and then South Africa already. And then realizing that there was this discipline of anthropology that was geared toward listening well and doing that respectfully and with mm. self-awareness and writing about cross-cultural situations well. Not only cross-cultural situations, but sure. uh, it's been a discipline that's specialized in that for years. Mm-hmm. There's questions that come up, sort of ethical questions, when you're interacting with people mm-hmm. uh, For example, I had a woman who shared with me that she was experiencing domestic violence. And Mm. uh, when you're in a situation of a researcher, do you have an obligation to say something? Do you have an obligation to intervene? Mm -hmm. What should you do? Uh, And but I tend to think that that should be an ethical question that any researcher deals with. I think that anthropologists in a way mm-hmm. uh, have to deal with it because we're face to face and that's probably good for us. <laughs> like, mm, if yeah. you're an economist dealing with a situation of domestic violence, you should probably care also. Uh, but you might be looking at it through the sort of veil of, of big data. It pushes us toward actually caring about the situations yeah. because we see them face to face. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great description. So fast forward You write this book. It's called The Laziness Myth. I'd love to just unpack the title just right off the bat. What is The Laziness Myth? And how are you inviting readers to think about it through your book? So like I mentioned earlier, one of the things that got me interested in this was that I would have these conversations about entrepreneurship in South Africa. And people would say over and over again, well, people here are just lazy. And in particular, they'd say black people are lazy and they'd say Zulu people, the ethnic group that I was working among, are especially lazy. And Mm. they say black men are especially lazy. And I started uh, wondering where that came from and started to uh, uh, uncover that this is part of how racialization has happened since the idea of race really was constructed Mm. in history, was that blackness has been associated with not being good workers, with being lazy But then, so there's more to it than that also. So laziness has been this sort of lingering assumption about the good life that affects race, but it also affects our wider ways of seeing success. Hmm. So I, a couple years ago, Googled 
or did a, a Bible search on the Bible Gateway search app for uh, Bible verses about lazy as I was writing this book. And uh, it came up with a suggested result of, I think it's Proverbs 10, 4. I just looked it up and it is basically that laziness results in poverty and hard work results in uh Prosperity, prosperity, something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like as uh, white Christians in the United States, especially, but also true of people in South Africa and much of the world that's been taught about race in the way that we Mm -hmm. have, we've been taught, well, success comes from hard work. And mm-hmm. if you're successful, that's because you worked hard. And if you're not successful, that's because you haven't worked hard. And mm. that, that it can be true that laziness r- results in problems in your life. And it can be true that success or that, that hard work can result in success, but that isn't the only determining factor. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to ignore the other factors that are involved. Like you could work really, really hard and never have success, or you could be outwardly successful in the world and and not have worked for that. Mm -hmm. So um, I was interested in unpacking those other social factors that go into what results in success and what doesn't. Um, And another thing about race is that um, through the last century in the United States, as well as in South Africa, people have learned basically don't be racist in the way of don't blaming things on biology. We know that biological racism mm-hmm. is sort of like faux pas. Don't say that. Uh, don't say, oh, black people are just inherently worse and white people mm-hmm. are inherently better. But we still have all these disparities that we can see. Mm-hmm. So when we look at, for example, in the United States, household incomes for white families are on average 10 times higher than household income or household assets right, in, in South Africa, you see that disparity. And if people don't understand mm. the social factors that go into causing that and the history that goes into causing that, the, so the sort of explanation that people leap to is, well, it's just because they're not working hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it must be either those individuals aren't working hard or there's something wrong with their whole culture that causes them not to work hard. And mm. that's, that's how we get this situation. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that's what I'm unpacking. <laughs> yeah, there's there's so many layers there. And so you you dive right into kind of the messy the messiness, the complexity of that. And the majority of your book really starts teasing out these different narratives that um it, it's not just the hard work mm-hmm. narrative that we default to or that is even in play or even valuable or determining kind of how we relate to work, but what are some different cultural ways that people think about work? Can you unpack what did you discover? In, in that interview process. When I talked to people uh, who were Black Zulu South Africans about this idea of laziness, uh, and they had heard this so much that it was a part of what they assumed about themselves too. Mm-hmm. I would ask people the question sometimes, what is unique about Zulu people? And they would answer, we're lazy. That's their first thing that came to their mind. Wow. But then you'd start talking to them and they'd say, but, 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 you know, other yeah. things. And they start to give examples of, but my father worked his tail off all his life and never got a job, but managed to survive on the income that he could scrounge mm-hmm. up anyway. And, you know, they tell these stories of the hard work that was actually happening. Mm. And um, so part of what I'm, I'm seeing is that people actually are working hard. But also I was interested in, so how do people, can people attain the good life, basically, mm-hmm. if they can't have the good life that is assumed people will have with like, you know, the good job and the pretty house and the fancy car. Mm-hmm. And um, 
because I should mention too, in South Africa, the unemployment rate is extremely high and has been for as long as statistics have been <laughs> accurately counted. Uh, like uh, for the last 20 years, the unemployment rate in South Africa has been as high as it was in the Great Depression hmm. in the United States, just wow. consistently. Yeah. So you're surrounded by people who can't find jobs. Mm-hmm. And I was interested to hear... Um, does that always feel like you're just not living a good life and you're sort of excluded from the good life then if you can't find a good job? Mm-hmm. Or are there other ways that people achieve a good life? And that was, to me, some of the the most interesting hmm. and um, and hopeful, in some ways, side of things. So yeah. um, one of those ways... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that yeah. like several stories um, in your book highlight the role specifically of respect mm-hmm. and then the influence of relationships. And so I yeah. wonder if you could kind of unpack and describe how each of those values frames different paradigms of, of work and as well as the good life. Sure. Yeah. So in the book, like in the second half of the book, I basically go through what are some alternative narratives of the good life? If it's not just this one-on-one relationship between like work mm. hard, succeed, which mm-hmm. we all know doesn't actually work for anybody. It's not that simple. Then how could we better think about this? And one is, uh, this idea of respect and, mm-hmm. um, it's a beautiful concept. The word in um, Zulu is intronipo, uh, which is kind of translated respect, but I think it doesn't 100% line up with mm-hmm. how you might think about respect in the United States. It has to do with um, honoring people, looking up to people, and uh, treating them with dignity, which is something I think you might assume with respect. Mm-hmm. It also has to do with redistribution, though. So I started to realize that when you respect somebody who, say, is you know, higher in the social, higher social status than you, the expectation is that they also respect the person who has lower status in society mm. and that they care and give them enough dignity to actually be willing to redistribute power and huh. resources to them. So it's kind of this responsibility to the people around you. It's not just sort of like, you know, be kind and like say somebody is valuable, but it's actually do something about that. Yeah. It's yeah. actually like an avenue for, for agency, mm-hmm. no matter your place or position yeah. or a currency kind of. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I found it so fascinating because South Africa is one of the most unequal countries in the world, mm-hmm. by some measures, the most unequal. And so I was interested in how do people survive in inequality? You know, we can try to create a more equitable society, but it's a slow road to doing that. And so yeah. how do people achieve good lives or better lives within mm-hmm. that? And I think one of the ways is this this value of respect of saying, I am worthy of your dignity and pay attention to me. And if you actually, you know, yeah. see me with dignity, then you're going to be willing to distribute resources accordingly. Yeah, I remember one of the reflections in your book talked about um, how some of the stories um, in your interviews about those who actually enjoyed their jobs or gave yeah. good kind of testimonials about their work experience spoke about how they were treated. And, mm-hmm. and it really reflected the value of respect. It wasn't about how much they were paid. It wasn't the type of work they were doing, yeah. but it was really the conditions that they were working in mm-hmm. that made it valuable. Yeah. I started counting how many people told me that they had left jobs and then paying attention to the reasons that they gave for having hmm. left jobs. And if the laziness myth were true, right, then people would probably say, well, I left that job because it was too hard and I didn't mm-hmm. feel like it or something like that. Yeah. But instead, the reasons that they gave were consistently the the most common reasons had to do with respect. So it was hmm. things like they didn't treat me as a human being, you know, and it wasn't even necessarily about pay. Pay was kind of like a subcategory mm-hmm. to respect. It was like, 
I'm not paid enough to be treated that way. You're, the pay that you give me is communicating to me that you mm-hmm. don't respect me. And the workplaces where people were happiest were places where they said, we're respected. We treat each other with dignity. Mm-hmm. And there were specific ways that that was demonstrated. So yeah. people were invited into leadership no matter what their job was in the company or their families were known by name and mm. like welcomed in and out of the building and things like that. Unpack the relational side, because just the the role of relationships and and the ways, whether it's family relationships, community relationships that drive different decisions that I think are different from perhaps um, some people in the United States. It could be um, particular to culture, but it could not be. But it's it's a narrative that you're unpacking relationally in terms of what's valuable and and it affects it can it can look like the laziness myth of, Mm. oh, I left this job, but um, do you have a story that kind of illustrates that or, yeah, the role of relationships? Yeah. People would uh, use the word right in in South Africa, both in the midst of Zulu sentences and in the midst of English sentences. They put this word ku in front of it, ku right, meaning it's right um, in the middle of a Zulu sentence. Yeah. And, and the Zulu word for right is lungile, but it, it's this sense of like rightness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people wanted there to be rightness in the world, meaning the relationships mm-hmm. with the people around you have to be right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I knew people who, who left jobs uh, where they'd say it wasn't right. The way I was treated wasn't right. And that could be Maybe there was a a labor broker company that basically hired them on a contract where every month they could be laid off again and they had no consistency in their job. Um, There was somebody who Hmm. um, watched somebody fall off a ladder and there was no compensation for it. And Hmm. um, there was somebody who was sent out into the woods and given just a flashlight as protection and was supposed to protect this multi-million dollar equipment with their flashlight. And they realized this is not right. Like I am, my life is treated as if it is less valuable than this Mm. equipment. Uh, And these are people who would quit jobs over this knowing that they might not have a way to feed their family the Mm -hmm. next month. So Mm -hmm. it was, it was saying my value as a human person is so valuable that I'm not going to let myself be treated like this, even though I know there's financial risk at stake here. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot more at play, yeah. <laughs> obviously. Um, I want to move to this phrase, the good life, mm-hmm. and w- why you use that phrase, and what does it mean? What are you thinking of when you're, you're using the phrase, the good life? Yeah. Well, what I tried to do is not think of what I think of, but to listen to what other people said. Mm-hmm. So I came up on that phrase uh, in part because people were using it in South Africa, and I was interested in what they meant by it. I actually was early in my research and uh, had flown into South Africa for just a summer visit for a couple of months. And I was staying in Johannesburg with a friend and I drove through the city and there's this huge billboard that said the good life. And there was a picture of two young men holding um, glasses and the ad was for um, liquor. Sure. <laughs> it's for alcohol. And, uh, and I'd already been thinking about using that word and it just really struck me like, you know, that's one picture of the good life is having the yeah. expensive alcohol brand, whatever that is, mm. your vodka or something. And people were talking about it though and saying like, you know, we've been promised the good life. We're not having the good life. So I started mm-hmm. just asking people, what does the good life mean to you? So you are a detailed storyteller. 
And you do a great job of showing how work and the good life aren't these isolated objectives or or simply like results of personal agency, but mm. instead they're they're complex concepts in this this web of the cultural narratives, economic systems, and a history of systemic and even legalized racism. I just want to open it up to, for you to share a story or mm. two that speaks to some of these layers. So the interplay of the cultural narratives, the systemic um, situations, and and yeah. that, bring that to life for some of our listeners today. Sure. Well, this the story that opens the book is of a guy who went by the name Bullet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, uh, early on when I first met him, I found out that he had uh, started out a program at Witts University in Johannesburg, which is a really high quality program, and he was going to study law. Mm-hmm. And after about a year or two of that, he dropped out and ended up studying sound design and our, um, tech production uh, and was writing hip hop music. And uh, that gave him life and joy, but wasn't a career. And so hearing him talk about the place that he was in of realizing, I don't want to be a lawyer. And mm-hmm. he, he, was from this black neighborhood, the black township uh, that had been uh, in the, you know, in the history of South Africa, you have these areas where black people were relocated, forced to live there, distance from Mm -hmm. the places where you can actually find jobs. He was one of a few people in his generation who had gone to a school that had been uh, only white people before the end of apartheid. He was one of only a few black people who went to that school. So he lived in both worlds of like predominantly white and predominantly black South Africa been exposed to opportunities, did really well in school, and then realized, I don't want this dream of being a lawyer. That's not anything that my peers look up to. And I don't know if that will actually make me happy, Hmm. but is there anything else that I can do and make money? And um, there's a great quote that I think is included in that first chapter too, where he says, there's no way out the way that they've made it for us. Hmm. And was very aware of all these systems sort of affecting his life where you just couldn't make it work. He'd had jobs and seen that he was a threat to older black people because he had more skills and would be perceived as taking their jobs away. It was a threat to Which white people. Which shows that that respect narrative at play perhaps yeah. where, yeah, that's the pri- priority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like to respect your elders in yeah. some way and yep. have right relationships. Yes. With- yeah. So again, like having right relationships with his peers and his friends in the township is really important to him. Mm-hmm. Being able to support his family if that eventually he had a kid and, and that was a mm-hmm. part of what was really important in his work too. Yeah. So wrestling with like, how do you find a life that actually is true to who you want to be mm-hmm. and what's possible for you in that yeah. setting? I wonder if you could share one of the stories that the, the chapters that's closer to the end of the book is in a way, some some uh, success stories. Mm-hmm. But you, you put a lot of qualifiers to that in yeah. terms of not wanting people to make assumptions about, look, there is an example of, of this just works. And yeah. and to reinforce the very thing that you're you're trying to tease out, you know, the complexities from. But but I wonder if you could kind of you could share one of those in terms of painting the picture of maybe a version of the good life that might be different from some of the listeners or or us and how we would define mm-hmm. that. 
Yeah. And thanks for highlighting that because I really was cautious about that and how mm-hmm. I wrote the book. And one of the early reviewers even pointed this out too and said, do you want to have these sort of success stories at the end of the book? Because it's mm-hmm. just playing into this narrative mm-hmm. of like, if you try hard, everything goes well. But if you really pay attention to these stories. So basically, yeah. I asked over 100 people what the good life looks like to them. And of them, it was something like five said mm-hmm. they had the good life. And so in that chapter, I pay attention to... Which is, that's just from like... Yeah. Pause on that, right? Five people out of like at least 100 that you've interviewed. Yeah. And some people were like, well, maybe sort of. But Uh there were five who kind of solidly said yes. And so I paid attention to what does the good life look like for them? And it's not enough that it's representative to say this is, you know, how everyone should achieve the good life. But uh, what are some common themes? And one thing that wasn't a common theme was employment. So I had, Hmm. you know, somebody who had a really nice job as an engineer, kind of the ultimate dream job that he never thought was possible as a kid. And then I had someone unemployed, someone self-employed and someone in a really low wage job. Mm. And so that wasn't the determinant. Um, but one thing they did have all in common was they all in some ways saw themselves as being in right relationships with people around them. Mm -hmm. So they tended to be, um, in family or community situations at home where they felt like they could provide well enough for the people they cared about. And, um, and then at work, they tended to see themselves as a valuable or a valued part of their company. Mm. One of them was at a shoe company that was actually started by people who had run a development organization and realized, why are we just telling people to sort of like try harder and like Mm -hmm. develop yourself if they have no opportunities? And they said, how about we just create a a company that Mm. gives people jobs where they have dignity and, uh, and people loved working at that company because they were included in leadership. Their families Mm -hmm. were known. Um, It met some of the structural challenges of life there. One being that education has always been so segregated Mm -hmm. in South Africa that trying to get a better future for your kids is really hard. Uh, This company had a commitment to paying for school fees for their employees. And so it wasn't just a good life for you as an individual. It's caring about your whole community. So another uh, piece of that, I guess, too, is that people came to see the good life often as not just me individually as one person who's going to get there by myself, but what's what's the good life for us and um, mm. and seeing sort of like it, it's about us. We achieving yeah. it together. Yeah, yeah, that's great. No, I'm, I'm really glad that you and I, I think that it, it adds um, really great texture and meaning and significance to, to the breadth of what you did. So. Yeah. I want us to kind of take a turn from uh, centering South Africa yeah. and and ask kind of what maybe many of our listeners are wondering, what are your thoughts about um, how your findings translate to American culture? Yeah. Um, how might we be thinking about this and start going like, what does this have to do with my vocation? And, mm-hmm. and what is my definition of the good life? We don't necessarily use the term the good life here. So how might we think about that? Yeah, your thoughts on on how to tra- how to start translating this? Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I loved that I discovered about writing this book as a professor and a mm-hmm. teacher is that when I talk about this research, it prompts people uh, in the United States to ask sort of thoughtfully, "Does that happen here too?" And and I love that they're hitting that point and saying, does it happen here too? And then Mm -hmm. they realize it does the Mm -hmm. racism side of it and the unemployment and the injustice side of it. And so like, I think there's this sort of unintentional thing that happens where Americans can read about South Africa from Mm -hmm. a distance and think like, Oh, that's them. I can sort of see it from a distance. And then suddenly you realize, wait, 
I'm I'm implicated in this also, especially as a white North American. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the racism and uh, and that predominant narrative of hard work is the solution to life mm-hmm. uh, that has come through European ancestry to South Africa and to the United States also. And so I hope that readers will start to recognize that and say, wait a second, when am I blaming poverty and someone not working hard enough? Mm -hmm. Or when am I attributing their success to them just being an exemplar, perfect kind of a person who deserves that Mm -hmm. rather than saying, where are the structures that have made it harder for some people to achieve that place than others or made it impossible for some impossible for others? So that's one part of it. That, I mean, on a personal side, maybe I'll let you ask whatever next question you want to, too, about um, how it personally applies to, like, when yeah. you're in a situation of work struggle. And I think that's, that's yeah. another way. It, it's, yeah, we can, we can yeah. definitely go there. I do want to ask, I mean, we, we titled this, this talk today about grappling with vocation. And yeah. so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how the good life might relate to vocation. Um, and is this the same as work? So kind of introducing a new term and yeah. how maybe you want to define vocation for us um, as you're describing this. But how does the good life relate to vocation? And vocation isn't a word I use in here, but it's definitely mm-hmm. one that is useful to think about. So yeah. I think of uh, vocation as one of a possible set of ways that we could think about work. Mm. And for me as a Christian, it's a way of thinking about work that incorporates, uh, well, I mean, the word comes from calling. So yep call from someone. And as a, a Christian of faith, I see that as a calling from God, mm. uh, from a Christian God. And, and so then work becomes, or vocation, or really sort of uh, what you're doing with your life becomes how you line that up with mm. what the caller desires for your life. Mm. So there's this element of conversation with the one who calls with God. Mm. That's a really beautiful picture. Yeah. Back to your question yeah. of how that relates to work. Yes. So go there. Great. Yeah. Go there. Yes. So it doesn't line up necessarily. Okay. And that's where I think we get in a lot of trouble is we assume that they're the same thing. And sometimes programs where it's like talk about vocation, we end up just talking about work and your career, yep. how to succeed in your career. But that leaves out so much of our life. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of examples would be just like a person who's a stay at home parent not getting paid, yep. you know, is uh, and you we're going to, we talked yeah, about this can, earlier. Talk about it, yeah. We're going to talk about what work means. And I said, well, yep. in my book, I'm really intentionally not defining work because yep. it gets defined in so many ways too. Yep. So, you know, is work what you get paid for? And often we assume that it is, but then that leaves out all the people who are working at home or working elsewhere for unpaid work. And again, vocation yeah. is not necessarily what you get paid for either. Uh, you think about retirement, that mm-hmm. phase of life, you know, do you suddenly not have a vocation anymore? Or children, do they not have a vocation? Is it only those middle years of your life, people with the ability and the job and everything? Um, clearly it's not. So mm-hmm. I think for vocation, uh, we have to kind of distance it from that and, and yeah. ask rather like, what is the, the, um, the way that God wants me to spend my time? You know, yeah. I think about it that way instead. Yeah, which could involve work or could not involve work. And yeah, that's great. Kind of getting into more of a personal situation. I think one of the challenges of living into your vocation is when your current circumstances don't align with where you believe you're called. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, there could be cultural and social expectations that are based on like gender or age or race that can can be barriers or somehow inhibit 
um, stepping fully into that vocation for a variety of reasons. So I would love you to just unpack, like, how do we wrestle with this tension ourselves? Um, how do we take our, our cultural social context into, um, into account there? How might faith play a role in that journey? The, the now, not yet kind of vocation can feel so out there. Yeah, mm. just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, so I've written some on how privilege shapes vocational journeys. And mm. one way is, just one of many ways, is that it shapes what we see as possible, what we see as an achievable hope for our life when we look at our future. So, for example, when I was an undergrad at University of Wisconsin, I came in as a physics major or maybe physics major. And I remember how often people would say, oh, physics, why physics? Mm. And I sat in these classes where I was the only woman and was not aware of the word microaggressions at the time. But I look back now and realize there was a lot of odd microaggressions of people like touching my hair, you know, no one talking to me except Hmm. for the one guy who suddenly asked me on a date, you know, and there was this awareness that I, as a woman, didn't Hmm. fit there in some way. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any female professors or teachers Mm -hmm. ever in physics. And, Hmm. and then I considered studying English literature. And I remember bringing this up to someone and they said, oh, you just seem like an English major and how nice that felt. <laughs> and at the You've time, somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> at the time, I had no words for mm. this and I didn't even know how to recognize what was happening. Mm. But my gender, my race, my so many of my social identity markers mm-hmm. matched what they could picture mm-hmm. with an English major. And so there was an easy sort of like, this will be comfortable and you must yeah. be set to do this. And now I don't know, you know, how my life would have turned out as a physics major. <laughs> I don't regret that. It probably would have been fine. Sure. Right? Um, I'm glad I ended up in the route that I'm on. But there's so many little things that happen mm-hmm. to people from birth on where we're told what we can achieve and what we can't. And there's these moments of surprise of like, oh, you did well on the math test. Hmm. You know, yeah. <laughs> that shape us, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. That's part of it. Did yeah. your did your faith come into play at that phase of life? I don't know where you were at just in your faith journey, but um, in terms of like your view of God and and that sense of call and and where you belonged, and even in just a particular major or I don't maybe think, that didn't. I don't think people were having those conversations with me. I do remember this sort of sense in high school of what the good Christians do is become missionaries, and I don't want to do that. But that was kind of the extent of the training that I think I got yeah. on thinking about vocation. And, um, and my life has taken a really yeah. sort of winding path with lots of twists and turns. And I'm grateful that no one told me it, it shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of wish sure. somebody had said that it can do that, that that's yeah. okay. You don't have to have it all figured out at once. For someone who's really struggling with their work or figuring out what vocation looks like in their life right now, or yeah. maybe they're trying to be a friend to someone who's, who's in that struggle, what advice do you want to leave us with mm-hmm. today? I think maybe going back to something that I said earlier about seeing the good life as something that is about us, that we are Mm -hmm. on, I love the phrase, we're on journeys of mutual transformation, Mm. Uh, that our calling is to be a part of a community that's moving in transformation toward what God has called us to be. 
And that is so different than this narrative that we often hear of it's all on you. You know, if you haven't got the good job and you haven't figured out what you want to be yet, Uh it's your fault. But rather like we're told things about ourselves. We're part of communities. We're part of society from birth to death. And acknowledging sometimes that's going to suck. We're going to have some, uh, it's going to put different challenges in front of some people more than others. And we need to be able to see those and name those Mm. and say, I, as an individual, don't have to uh, feel guilty or bad about the challenges that have come to me in Mm. my life, but rather God does have opportunities for me to thrive where I am. And I need to be a part of society as a whole, fixing the, the, societal reasons for um, people not being able to achieve the good life. So um, seeing it as we rather than me, (laughs) I think is good. So someone asked how important or not is longevity as part of the desire for the good life? So I'm wondering, like, we could think about that as the length of time maybe it takes to achieve the good life or Perhaps if the person's watching, you can you can elaborate on this question, or maybe it's it's in the chat. But how important or not is longevity? Yeah, I wasn't sure if that meant like as in how long your life will be, as in trying to live as long as possible. Does that well, make your well, life better? Well, let's take that. Like, what sure, do you, did you find? Yeah. Was there anything in your in the stories that you came across mm. that something about the good life was about living long or? that the the duration is somehow a part of that definition? Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is not from my own research, but just uh, research on vocation and retirement of what a struggle it is often to realize that you still have a vocation in these years of your life when you're Mm. moving toward retirement. And that vocation is not getting stuff done at those years. And Mm. it shouldn't be any point in our life, you know, where our value is not measured by what we achieve. Yeah, I think this is so hard for especially uh, North Americans and probably especially white North Americans to understand is that our value is not equated with what we earn. Um, You know, Mm. the market price on my hourly wage is not equivalent to the value of my life. So that's one piece of it. Um, The other, this totally different way that I think about um, longevity is uh, in South Africa, a lot of people talked about um, not being able to expect longevity. Mm. Um, Young men especially were very aware of um, reasons that they might die of, of violence or of HIV and AIDS was prevalent in the area where I was, or just things come up. Like people don't necessarily live Mm -hmm. long. The life expectancy there is much, uh, it's one of the lowest in the world actually. And so people talking about, you know, maybe I'll get to enjoy the sort of fruit of my labor later, Mm -hmm. but I don't take that as a given. Yeah. And, and I think that the North American narrative of life often is much more like you work and work and work. And then Mm -hmm. at one point you stop and you retire and then you've like achieved it. And I think we need narratives of the good life that include it can be present right now Mm -hmm. in the midst of the struggle and the mess and uh, along the way. Yeah, you write. We didn't talk about this term, but you write about the the term hustling or hustler Uh kind of concept and and how that can be an identity that someone resonates with in terms of how they relate to work. And that the good life is is somehow it's it's farther out there. It's it's down the road. Eventually, mm-hmm. I'll get there. But this is what this is what matters now. Yeah, yeah. People talked a lot about hustling, and so I have a whole chapter on just sort of unpacking that as a narrative of thinking about the good life. And it involves just assuming that there's going to be a struggle that you're mm. going to have to work and 
for Black South Africans, part of that was an awareness that there is not racial equality and Mm -hmm. you're going to have to work harder as a Black South African and, and the odds are against you. And so like just naming that and being honest with it and knowing you have to work harder. So here's a question. In your research, did you hear perspectives or motivations or sources for resiliency in seeking the good life? Uh, Part of it was this respect and having good relationships with other people. Hmm. Uh, In the chapter where I write about respect, I tell the story of a woman who had a lot of obstacles happen in her life and and how Hmm. crucial her relationships were with people. She was the one who was experiencing domestic violence. Hmm. And part of what I learned through that was that she knew who to call on for help. She Mm -hmm. had people to go to both legal services and friends and family and, and her sort of ability to flourish in life was her ability to go to people and get help. Even to me, Mm -hmm. you know, she reached out to me and Mm -hmm. valued me coming. And I think in part, it was like, she realized I need a network of people around me. So that's part of it. In the nitty gritty, I'll tell you too, another one of the narratives was this narrative that I called the just a laborer narrative. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is basically people who would say, I'm just a laborer. And at the end of the day, I go home and my job is not me. And Mm -hmm. I don't owe them anything more than I need to do to keep that job. Yeah. And I think sometimes white North Americans look at that with this sort of judgment of like, oh, you know, you should try harder. You should really give everything your job. And there are times when you need to be able to just say no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I need to distance myself from that. And I am more than what my job is. So that was a source of resilience It almost came across to me as like um, a coping mechanism Mm -hmm. or a way to compartmentalize maybe a a part of life which happened to be the job in this scenario that wasn't maybe very humanizing or, Mm -hmm. but it was, but it was necessary in some way. And so it was like, I'm just a laborer. Like I do that, but here's where I'm flourishing or here's where my aspirations, my values are, my loves. Um, This is what I really want to tell you about who I am. Mm -hmm. So Um, I will say honestly to the church, you know, as a Christian, I did not go into this book thinking like, I'm going to write about how the church is the solution to everything. And yet it just kept coming up. So um, among those people who did say they had the good life, Mm -hmm. um, some of the most dramatic transformations were because people became involved in the church and the church in South Africa is really, you know, it's in the thick of things. Yeah. I saw that. I saw that pattern as well. And I thought, gosh, did it like, how did this all come together? And this is just an odd, like, um, I wrestled with it. Honestly, I was like, yeah. I almost don't want to write this because people won't believe me because they know I'm a Christian. You know, yeah. they'll think yeah. I'm skewing the data. But like, yeah. when I asked people what was important, like there's an artist who became a Christian in the time yeah. that I knew him. And uh, he brought it up and, and started telling me about how his whole life had transformed. And yeah. he was like, yeah, I was not living the good life. And now I am. Yeah. And so I can't yeah. ignore that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I think that's beautiful. I think it's a really, it makes, brings an extra sweetness to the chapter mm-hmm. and just shows um, the work of God behind the scenes and all amidst all of these complexities that we're, we're unpacking that, that God's moving. Yeah. So, and a lot of it is that the church was really active. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. just sort of like, Oh, come to church. And like, it's telling you to smile and try harder and go home happy. It was like, I knew somebody who had been in jail and was dealing with an addiction and ended up like basically just living in a Catholic church for a while because mm-hmm. they would take care of him and keep him away from people who are, um, not a good influence on his life. And, um, and that was transformative. So it was yeah. like people who are just willing to be super present in people's lives through, through challenges. Yeah. That, that's so great. 
Um, so a question in a different direction. How do you consistently keep the value of work in check so it doesn't become our ultimate value? Yeah. So maybe, I don't know, with the ways you've wrestled with that personally or yeah. ways you counsel others in terms of keeping our value for work in check. I've written an article where I talk about the Frederick Buechner saying that your vocation is where your deep longing meets the world's deepest need, something like that. And how that's so often cited. I mean, at least that was yeah. maybe the one thing about vocation I heard. There's a, a little problem that happens with that, though, when we define our vocation as just being meeting somebody's need. Because I think mm. this is another sort of myth that we mm. have about work or about vocation is that I am only valuable if I serve someone, if I fix somebody else's problem. And I think this produces two things. One is that when we are underemployed, like we don't have a job where we're feeling like all our passions and our skills mm-hmm. are being used, we feel worthless because it's like I'm only valuable if I do something and make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And then vice versa, if we do have a job that we are aligned with and think is important, we can become overworked because our, our whole sort of identity and purpose is in solving the world's problems and, and mm. achieving more and more. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers that question or not, but the, yeah, definitely. So there's, yeah. you know, we have all these possible ways we can go wrong of both sort of giving it too much and giving it too little. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And this question maybe flows out of some of your, your comments there. How has your guidance for students um, who are planning for their futures, um, how has your guidance changed since starting your research? And some of your students Mm. might be watching, um, (laughs) uh, but how has your, maybe your research informed how you guide students um, or or changed because of, because of your research? Yeah. I think that it's helped me to see the, the privilege involved in how people are taught about vocation. The people who come from more privileged backgrounds are often told over and over again, you can do anything and achieve anything. And they go through life expecting that to happen. And so then there's this like total like devastation Mm -hmm. when your first job out of college is not what you hope for, maybe no job at all. And I started hearing from alumni and people in those early years after college, like no one told me this could happen, Mm. that I might not get the job that's perfect. And nobody prepared me for that. So Mm -hmm. I started to realize like, we need that kind of resilience. We need tools for like, how do I quit a job that's just plain unjust? Mm -hmm. How do I speak up to an employer who's not treating me right? Mm. How do I, you know, sort of distance myself from a job that isn't my whole identity, but I just need it to pay the bills right now because sometimes that's how work is. Yeah. Um, So I think there's that side for people who have grown up in privilege and then, and then for people who haven't grown up in privilege, sort of realizing like, what is the narrative that you need to be able to hear also is you do have possibilities. (laughs) Like, you know, like what does hope look like for you and how do you develop the resilience to sort of hustle? Like how do you Mm -hmm. acknowledge there's going to be things that are not fair. You need to be able to name them. You need to find your people who are going to support you through that and stand Mm -hmm. by you and sort of get what you're going through. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.